I'm Sandy Rattray, CIO at Man Group. Welcome to the CIO Agenda podcast. Today I'm joined by Juliana Bordigoni, Director of Specialist Strategies at Man AHL, and Ori Benakiva, Director of Portfolio Management at Man Numeric. We're going to be talking about China. So uh, just to kick off, Ori, what is it that makes China an interesting place to invest? So there are a number of attributes uh, that, that make the China market uh, a very interesting and attractive one for an investor such as Man Numeric. And the key ones are inefficiency, the diversity and diversification of the investment opportunities offered, the level of liquidity, and ultimately the amount of data. And all of these coupled together create a, a market environment that offers interesting potential for quantitative approaches. And Juliana, from your perspective as a macro investor, what does the market look like in China? What, what, what can you invest in as a macro investor? Yeah, for me, uh, the uh, most interesting aspect is the diversification. So it's exactly what market you can access that are unique to China. So uh, you, can, you can obviously invest in equities, you can invest in bonds, so fixed income in general, and you can access commodity markets. And uh, if you stop for a second on uh, the commodity markets, uh, you have markets, with, markets which are truly unique, like uh, eggs, apples, that you don't find elsewhere. And you find other markets like industrials, which are not very liquid uh, outside, uh, well, the other don't exist or they're not very liquid outside China, like uh, um, steel or uh, fluid glass. So you have these different uh, commodity markets. How liquid are they? Uh, it, you know, you might imagine that, for example, eggs would be a market that had very little liquidity. Yeah, so that is the other uh, appealing part of China. So the markets, uh, the commodities in general are among the uh, biggest in the world. So if you look at uh, the number of contracts traded, commodity traded, traded um, worldwide, you have eight uh, Chinese commodities. The top five are Chinese commodities. And uh, just to give an idea, you have markets like steel rebar, soybean meal, silver, terephalic acid, and methanol. Okay, so let's uh, move a little bit and just talk about the um, structure of the market. So, Ori, maybe uh, just to kick it off, can you give us a beginner's guide to the structure of onshore and offshore um, equities in China? and? You know, how, how do investors access these? What are the differences between the onshore and the uh, offshore markets? So there are a number of differences and a number of mechanisms for accessing onshore or what's known as the, MS, or the China A uh, investment universe uh, from the equity perspective. The first uh, available access point for foreign investors was back in 2002 with the introduction of the QFI uh, program. Uh, but the QFI program in its early inception had some cumbersome, um, cumbersome hurdles for implementing. And so there wasn't much adoption at that point in time. The, the biggest adoption for foreign access was with the advent of the Stock Connect in 2014. And the Stock Connect is a mechanism by which investors offshore can invest onshore into China through a Connect program with the Hong Kong exchange. 
The biggest significant change to the Connect has been the addition of the Shenzhen uh, exchange to the Connect program in 2016. This really opened up the investment universe much more broadly uh, to onshore equities. And, and also along with that has been a expansion in the ability in the QB program recently to allow a much more flexible access into the marketplace for investors. And if you look at the Chinese equity markets today, onshore and offshore, then we still put them into emerging markets as a classification. So how large is China as a portion of emerging market equities? As far as the MSCI China index, today China represents 37%, about approximately 37% of the total index exposure. And keep in mind that that is, that is the case with only a 20% inclusion factor for the China A securities. So if you were to assume a more normalized inclusion factor for onshore securities, then the expectation is that China, China will represent close to half of the emerging market index, at which point in time, you know, it will be more similar in composition to the representation of the U.S. in the global developed index. And so maybe we can just dwell on that a little bit. So some are, depending on how you calculated a third or so of emerging market equities with the current uh, inclusion factor and potentially much more at a normal inclusion factor, are you finding that investors want to allocate that larger portion of their portfolios to China? And if not, then what are they doing about it? Yeah, so there's a number of different approaches that we've seen uh, allocators take. The, 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 the primary one so far has been to allocate to, to China A through their global emerging market mandates, uh, which means that ultimately they're getting a very underrepresented exposure to China A securities in comparison to their capitalization. And to point out, China A securities currently represent the second largest market um, globally uh, and most liquid market on a cap relative basis uh, in comparison to say the US. Um, now, the other approach would be to make direct allocations to onshore China A equities uh, strategies uh, or managers, but that comes with some elevated risk as well. Uh, one of the key risks is that the China A share market exhibits elevated volatility. Um, there's been a history of boom and bust cycles, um, as well as there are some limitations on market mechanisms, such as shorting and financial derivatives that also provide some other stumbling blocks in terms of hedging some of the beta risk uh, that you would be taking. And so are you finding that different investors in different parts of the world are taking different approaches they've obviously got different uh considerations and uh and uh, uh concerns of their own so are there some parts of the world where you're seeing more china investment and other parts of the world where you're seeing less china investment i would say it's necessarily regional i'd say it's more a function of the allocators experience in emerging markets and, and tolerance for taking on tracking error risk or their you know how they perceive the inefficiency opportunity onshore and in china a versus other markets uh, but one of the things that is definitely a common theme is that more and more investors are starting to view china not just China A, but just the broader China equity marketplace environment as a as an asset class uh, in a sort of a separate asset class decision point, much like many investors consider the U.S. Uh, and that is by 
you know, both due to the nature of its size, its, um, its weight within the index, and the breadth of opportunities that that marketplace uh, affords investors. Okay, great. Well, we'll, we'll come and talk about alpha uh, in these markets in a moment. But before that, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the macro markets with Juliana. Uh, these markets weren't available to foreign investors until really quite recently. So what's happened there? What happened is that uh, in uh, uh, September last year, uh, there, was, there was an announcement uh, on an expansion of the uh, QFI scope. Now, what is QFI? QFI is uh, uh, the program that uh, uh, grants uh, um, offshore uh, investor access to um, a, a list of uh, um, onshore uh, Chinese markets. And up to November last year, these included uh, equities, uh, cash equities, uh, cash bond, and uh, index futures for edging purpose only. Uh, in uh, uh, November, uh, they announced that from November onwards, they would, uh, uh, like offshore investors with the QFI license, would be allowed to invest in a list of commodity futures or futures more in general. Uh, as of today, uh, there are not yet uh, any futures available for uh, via QFI. There have been about 20 markets that have been sent for approval to CSRC from the exchanges, but they have not been approved yet. But this is the big change that in the next months or um, uh, the timeline is not defined, offshore investors, we will be able to invest in the future market, or at least in a subset of them. Let's dig into that just a little bit more, because at one level, you could imagine you have a, a set of markets previously not accessible to foreign investors that are very liquid, very diversifying versus most of the markets that they already have access to, as we've talked about. So they might actually want to allocate a lot to China. Will they be able to allocate a lot or are they going to start in small size? At the moment, uh, our experience on shore is that uh, there are, uh, on the commodity size, there are exchange limits. So the limit uh, that offshore investors face are these uh, exchange limits uh, that are imposed by the exchanges. And that is going to limit the size that uh, we will be able to do. Okay. So it's, it's, it's going to take a while before it becomes a significant part of investors' portfolios, yes? Yes. So let's move back now to equities and Ori, uh, just to talk about both the alpha opportunities, but also the diversification um, that Chinese equities uh, present. So why don't we start with the diversification? So how should we think about how correlated or uncorrelated Chinese equities are with other equity markets around the world? Sure. So uh, there, are, there are two perspectives I, I would take on the diversification opportunity with investing onshore into China A. The first is just the correlation with other equity markets, uh, which is lower than the opportunity that is offered by, say, the Global Emerging Market Index relative to the MSCI World Index, which is the Developed Market Index. So China A is in many ways the most diversifying liquid equity market available to investors today. Um, the other is just the, the alpha diversification uh, opportunity that China A exhibits. The, the factor correlation, if you think of the uh, 
of factors through the borrow lens, uh, the more traditional borrow lens, the correlation of the factor returns with other markets, and this is comparing China A to the to other major markets, is close to zero. So there is significant factor diversification payoff benefits as well to investing in the China A share market, and, and really highlighted by some of how the the factor returns played out in March of 2020. Uh, during the peak of the the, the pandemic and 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 market sh and, and and government shutdowns, that the value factor underperformed dramatically in all developed markets at that point in time, and was actually quite positive in China. So quite a bit of diversification opportunity there. Okay, so that's a great example of of how different the markets are. If we could talk a little bit about the signals you use as a uh, quant equity investor. How different are the signals uh, or the the factors that you're using in China to those that you use in other markets around the world? So there's definitely some commonality in the philosophy that we employ outside of China and, and onshore. I'd say that the, the key uh, advantage uh, that the China Asia market affords us from a quantitative perspective is the the breadth of available alternative data sets. There's you know well over 80 alternative data sets that we've identified. Uh, for research uh, in the China A share market, of which we are already currently using uh, a, a fair amount that we have found to be to be very productive, and, and those tend to be focused in the areas of, you know, web scraping, natural language processing, e-commerce based information, uh, social media sentiment based information, um, even ESG based information, and so it's a very rich market from an alternative data perspective. And at the same time, it's a market that's in a, a very interesting evolution um, in terms of factor payoffs. And, you know, and, and the reason that's the case is that you have a, a long history. The market's been around for you know, 30 years or so. And much of that history was very driven by onshore investors with very limited institutional or foreign access. Um, and as that market evolves, we expect to see more institutionalization of the marketplace. We expect to see a significant growth in asset management industry uh, offerings, uh, and we expect that the drivers of the marketplace to transition as well. So it is is a market in, in flux as well, which creates creates interesting opportunities. Was it a surprise to you that actually more similar than different, perhaps um, factors seem to work well in China? I think the, the, the we were pleasantly surprised that some of the fundamentally oriented models that we've had, you know, the long histories of, of utilizing within developed markets also exhibited, you know, attractive payoff patterns within the China share market, given, you know, the higher volatility and higher turnover nature of that marketplace. We're also cognizant that there are some behavioral bias based opportunities in China A that are, are quite significant, but that might become less so significant going forward as, as that market evolves. You know, one example would be the post-earnings announcement drift. This is a, a very well-known, well academically, you know, academically researched, uh, you know, anomaly in the market where after a company announces earnings, there tends to be this this earnings announcement drift after the fact, either positive or negative, based on on the outcome of the earnings announcement. And that's something that over time in developed markets has become far less, you know, far less attractive from a payout perspective because investors. You know, discount that information very quickly into the price of the company. Yet, at least onshore currently, that announcement drift still continues to offer really attractive properties. Okay, great. Well, we'll and let's come back later on and talk a little bit about 
the risk of the at, at a market level of Chinese equities and also whether equities are participating in the growth of the economy, which has obviously been spectacular in recent decades. But before doing that, I'd like to just spend a bit of time back on the uh, macro markets with uh, Juliana. So you've run um, strategies onshore for a number of years. How um, has that experience uh, made you think about running uh, strategies for offshore investors? Again, uh, for many years, uh, I've been working in uh, uh, trying to add uh, uh, new drivers uh, to uh, our existing portfolios. And uh, what we have seen uh, in China is that if you, if you take like a simple strategy, like so we are, I'm talking now about a simple uh, momentum uh, model uh, with uh, just with an holding period of a couple of months, and then you run this on the most liquid uh, Chinese commodities, and you compare it with uh, a similar, like the same model, but run on uh, some uh, global uh, commodities. And then what you see, you see that uh, the uh, two are uh, not highly correlated, so actually adding uh, this uh, uh, like a momentum, a trend following system on Chinese commodity helps uh, diversify your uh, trend following in, uh, in global markets more in general, but also in global commodities. So in many ways, then a similar observation um, to Ari that existing models that we've used in other parts of the world have turned out to function very well in the Chinese um, markets. Can you give a little bit more color on the nature of the market? So who are the other investors in the in the macro markets today? Does that look like other parts of the world? Is it hedges and speculators and all the people that we read about in US or other uh, Western uh, markets? Or is it a different makeup? What is uh, uh, the current uh, uh, market view is that uh, there is uh, a higher uh, retail uh, participation uh, in uh, Chinese markets. Um, the, uh, the view is that the retail participation is uh, uh, around 80% on average with uh, lower participation in agricultural market and higher participation, uh, retail participation in uh, financial futures. So we do see a, a slight, a different uh, split between uh, institutional and uh, retail uh, investors. Okay, so let's get back now to uh, risk and market returns. Ori, the Chinese equity markets have shown quite a lot of volatility over the years. And some might argue they haven't really kept up with the performance of the Chinese economy. So can you give us a bit of color as to both the risk of the Chinese equity markets and whether it will participate to the same degree in economic growth as, as perhaps we've seen in other parts of the world? So I'll start by focusing on, on the risk. And, and I think one of the key risks uh, to equity investors in the China A onshore market is some of the limitations on market mechanisms um, that would otherwise you know, dampen volatility in certain market environments. So the lack of 
shorting, uh, which is quite limited at this point in time, and financial derivatives um, does create some limitations on the ability of investors, uh, long investors, to, to do some hedging. Uh, and that's probably, and that is consistent with the elevated level of volatility and some of the boom bust cycles that we've we've seen historically. Also, as a as a relatively closed economy until recently, uh, the market tends to be much more sensitive to the directions and the regulatory changes uh, that occur in that marketplace uh, in comparison to some other markets. Now, ultimately, at the end of the day, this also creates opportunity. It means that the return dispersion in the onshore market, uh, which is in the mid 30% range uh, on an annualized basis, is significantly higher, almost 50% higher than in developed markets. Um, and ultimately, return dispersion is the measure of the opportunity set available to, to stock selection uh, you know, based strategies uh, like the one that Man Numeric employs. From a participation in, in GDP growth and economic growth, I think the one thing I would highlight, because that is a bit out of our kind of area of expertise, is that you know, the China A-share market offers significant exposure to, to newer technology companies, um, to kind of more disruptive technologies, as well as companies that uh, are supplying to the consumer demand-oriented uh, growth in the marketplace. Uh, and that's something that's less accessible outside of the market, outside of the China A-share market offshore. Uh, and so that offers an, an attractive opportunity to kind of gain exposure to the growth of the, the middle class uh, onshore. Okay, great. And let's now turn back to commodities and talk about the uh, sensitivity of a number of the markets that you're active in, um, also to growth and maybe to inflation as well in a previous episode of this podcast, we've talked about how momentum in commodities might be a good hedge to uh, global inflation. So does the same thing apply in China? So firstly, are we seeing uh, the same types of effects in the commodity markets that we've seen in uh, Western markets, a very big supply demand imbalances? And secondly, uh, is that likely to provide a hedge to inflation, Juliana? Yeah, absolutely. We are seeing uh, uh, definitely very strong uh, uh, trends in commodity. Uh, the um, recovery theme has played uh, in China even earlier than uh, in than outside China, I would say. In fact, uh, we have seen China recovering from the pandemic uh, sooner than the other economy. And if you look at it last year, China had a um, GDP growth of 3%, 3.2% compared to um, other economies that have seen negative number. And this year already, we have seen a Q1 number of like 18, uh, over 18%. So definitely the theme of uh, recovery and uh, higher commodity prices has been uh, playing uh, in uh, China. Um, I would add that uh, in general, if you look at uh, which market we see in China, we see markets that are strongly uh, connected to commodity production and consumption, because these are the markets that China needs. I mean, we have the one that are key to their economy. And uh, uh, the, what we have seen in the last year, but more in general, uh, uh, 
uh, in uh, the last decade or so has been the growth of China coming uh, through these uh, markets, uh, uh, future markets that we trade. Okay, let's uh, now just look into the future and see uh, how it might evolve. So for you, Ari, you're managing Chinese equity portfolios for foreign investors, for non-Chinese investors. The weights or the allocations that those investors have today to China still pretty low. So what do you what do you wish for? What do you hope for in terms of the future? What do you hope would change for um, those uh, non-Chinese investors to, to increase their allocations? What, what are we waiting for then? So I, I think that ultimately a lot of investors are anchored to the, the weightings that are provided by the index providers such as MSCI. So there is some wait and see that's going on with how the index provider uh, views accessibility for foreign investors and, and adjust their weights accordingly. I do think that there are some investors that recognize that, you know, of all the markets globally, the one market that can expect a, a tailwind of flows in the coming years is the onshore China market. It's likely that over time that MSCI will raise the inclusion factor, uh, which will ultimately, you know, lead to flows, uh, passive and active uh, into the marketplace. So I think it's a it's an attractive opportunity from a tailwind perspective. Uh, which is in, in contrast to other markets where that's not to be, you know, not to be structurally expected. Um, and then ultimately, the other one is just that as the as China becomes a more prominent part of the index, you know, we do expect to more investors to think of that allocation as a, a separate decision point as opposed to part of the, you know, a broader global emerging markets uh, allocation, and that should create more opportunity for for managers who offer attractive idiosyncratic China offerings. And do you have investors that are doing that today that are saying that China is sufficiently different to other markets in the emerging market indices that it should just be treated differently, either at a higher or a lower weight to what the index suggests? Yeah, so we're definitely seeing investors uh, that are dipping their toe in, in that direction, as well as investors that are starting to think of a framework where China is viewed separately from, you know, the broader emerging markets mandates. Uh, the one limitation, which, which which I mentioned, is that because of the lack of financial derivatives, ultimately the exposure, any active exposure you take to China A in comparison to other markets is a, a risk that is is nearly impossible to efficiently hedge at this point in time. And I think that's ultimately a pretty big limiting factor. And so one of the things that might alleviate that quite significantly is introduction of some financial derivatives, such as the one that was discussed in Hong Kong uh, for the MSCI China index that will give investors much more flexibility to express their, their views on China A versus China H um, more effectively. And Juliana, from your perspective, what does the future look like for running macro strategies in China? What are you hoping for uh, that makes this market grow? The uh, expansion of the QFI uh, program uh, last uh, September uh, has been uh, a great step uh, into the future. And uh, I hope that uh, um, the first uh, few markets will be approved uh, by CSRC to be tradable via QFI this year. And uh, uh, going forward, I hope that in the next few years, we will be able to trade via QFI 
all the uh, onshore uh, futures. Wonderful. Well, thank you, uh, Juliana and Ori. Uh, in summary, I think you both said that the models and the approaches which we've used in other parts of the world have translated really very well to investing either in Chinese equities or in the macro markets in China. You both said that the amount of investment by non-Chinese investors in China today is really quite low and that this represents one of the enormous opportunities for growth uh, in the future and that we think that that's an area where we're going to see much more um, in the coming years uh, from our investors. So thank you again uh, very much uh, Juliana and Ori for joining us. Thank you Sandy. Yes, thank you. And to our uh, listeners, thank you very much for listening. You can follow the CIO Agenda on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms to receive each new episode. Thank you and goodbye. Mm -hmm.